So the, the way to bring the mind into the present or ground ourselves in basic meditation is like meditation on the body and on the breath. You can always do that whenever you get lost or, or uh, get carried away with thoughts or feelings. <coughs> just remember that there's the breath, you're still breathing, the body's still here. That will ground you. It'll bring you, it'll, it'll establish mindfulness in the present. Of course, emotionally, we, we, we can resist this because uh, maybe we're looking for some, something else. Doesn't seem important enough, the breath or, the, or just the, to reflect on the, on the posture of the body or the feeling of the body as it is in the present. So we tend to uh, dismiss this, and so I, I encourage you to have complete faith in this practice. It's just the present moment, what's happening, the breathing, and the body's like this. Contemplate the body. I mean, like, like consciousness allows you, intuitive awareness with consciousness allows you to bring the body. Uh, the body is in the mind, in other words. We, we tend to think, you know, the conventional way of thinking about uh, the mind is that it's, that it's in the body, don't you? The, the average person would say, mind is up here, it's my brain or it's my heart or something like this. You think it's inside you. So uh, that we, we identify with, um, I mean, probably Americans must they identify their brains. <laughs> In Thailand, they point the mind. They usually point to the heart. They say, "Where's the where's their mind?" Or they say, "Point here." But in uh, the West, we're so so obsessed with thinking, with ideas, and with intellectual. Uh, accomplishments that uh, we tend to see the, that uh, it's all up in the head. But this is another way of contemplating, like the body is in the mind, because you can be mindful of the body. Just by, say, listening or watching uh, opening to the feelings of the body and to the, just like I was saying uh, this morning, just by thinking right little finger and the, your little finger is a conscious experience. And so the body itself is, uh, it is very good for the body to be allowed uh, to be accepted in consciousness rather than to just be dismissed or to be misunderstood or to be uh, exploited, taken advantage of, misused by what we, what we usually do with our bodies is usually we um, either ignore them or we exploit them for pleasure. <coughs> Whether we're trying to, to use our bodies just to have a pleasure from them or try to ignore them. And so meditation then is neither seeking pleasure, demanding pleasure from the body, nor ignoring it, but 
reflecting on it, listening to it, listening to its rhythms, um, contemplating its feeling, its sensitive, uh, its sensitivity, its the sense of weight or heat or cold, pleasure or pain that we experience through the body, through the senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, the sensual realm that we're born into is is a realm where that we can contemplate because this realm is it's sensitive and the 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 mind can reflect can can observe sensitivity you can you have the ability to reflect and contemplate what sensitivity <coughs> is it's so obvious isn't it sensitivity like Heat and cold, pleasure and pain, beauty and ugliness, beautiful sounds or uh, ugly sounds or beautiful odors or horrible odors or tastes of salt, sweet, bland, astringent, bitter. There's a sensitivity. The fact that we feel, we can feel good or feel bad. We can, our feelings can be hurt. We can feel depressed or elated. So this is this realm and this form, this whole cosmos that we're we're now experiencing is the sense realm, sensitive realm. So I, I'm reiterating this word because we tend to take sensitivity as some kind of personal thing, when it's just a natural thing. It's nature. So the body is in the mind, which means that you, you can bring it into consciousness. Your feet, your hands, your uh, head, your face, your shoulders, your chest and back and waist and hips and a whole lot. The whole thing, parts of it, bits of it. So this is developing this kind of uh, reflection on the body. Well, one of the, the foundations of mindfulness is the Gayanupasana uh, Satipatthana, or the, found, the body as a foundation for mindfulness. So a foundation is, a, you know, that means it's something you can, it's, it's uh, something that you have all the time. The body is with you till it dies. It's uh, something here and now. It's seen in terms of, now we're seeing the body in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of personal uh, attachments. Is somebody... Tibetan hmm? Tibetan Welcome.
opportunity. <laughs> personal, not personal. What's that sound? Is that a train? Stay <laughs> sensitivity, isn't it? <laughs> Now, this, uh, what, this noticing sensitivity, this reflecting sensitivity is like this. And it's, it's, uh, because otherwise we're just caught into it, we're just reactive and uh, just uh, operate in, through the conditioned reactions to pleasure and pain or praise and blame, the heat and cold of the body, we, we, we're merely caught in reactions of liking or disliking. But reflecting means we're, we're, we're noticing, this is the way it is. Having a human body is like this. And, it, and notice that, that it is, the human body is something Till it dies, it's going to be a source of continuous uh, irritation for you. <laughs> That's just the way it is. I mean, no matter how much we try to make it comfortable and um, make life convenient, efficient, comfortable for us, we still, I mean, here in, the, in the America, uh, Americans have done marvelous things over the past hundred years to make life increasingly more comfortable. But uh, it's still, we feel uh, constantly irritated also, even in the midst of comfort. Because this realm is, is, it's a sensitive realm, so it's an irritating realm. Because something's always coming at you, isn't it? Something's always impinging on you in some way. I mean, you close your eyes and you feel uh, you know, like the sound of the train, or you feel uh, somebody's breathing too hard, or you hear somebody's breath, or, you, or your, your knees start hurting, or uh, whatever. There's always, uh, you know, there's always something kind of impinging on your consciousness, some irritating, some, what is called irritation. Even <clears throat> any sensual uh, experience is, is basically irritating. It irritates the mind. So, this is just, um, I'm not asking you to believe this, I'm just, this is a reflection for you to contemplate. It, that this, this is the experience of, of sensitivity, and that implies it's a, it's, you, you're going to be irritated till the body dies, or you go unconscious. Or we, maybe we try to take drugs or try to lessen the irritation of it. And it can't be, like we can get chronic uh, pain or diseases, things like this, that, that make the impingement more irritating or very painful or unpleasant. But even pleasant conditions are irritating when you really, when you contemplate them. And so, the conditioned realm that we live in is, is, is this realm of, of having to live 
this lifetime, the span, the lifetime span of your body in this state of sensitive sensitivity and irritation. And so, but this we can endure, this is bearable. This is, there's nothing wrong with it, it's not bad, it's not, uh, it's, uh, it's, but it is something to contemplate and to accept for what it is. Because when you don't accept it, and then you're always looking for something, a way of life, or something that will happen to you where you won't ever be irritated again. And you'll spend the rest of your life, wasting your life, looking for, for paradise in a realm that is not paradisical. <laughs> so, uh, the world that we live in is like this. It's not, it's, it's, uh, you're going to experience pleasure and pain. Uh, the society is going to uh, praise you and blame you. How many of you have only been praised all your life, never been blamed or criticized? We're good at criticizing each other, criticizing ourselves. So, uh, this is the society is an irritating experience. We want to be respected and uh, to have good fortune and success. And what we dread is being despised, looked down on, rejected of being a failure, considered a failure, isn't it? As, that's what we most dread as a human individual. Modern, these are worldly values, the idea of I want to be successful and happy, I want to have good health, I want to be attractive and acceptable and uh, respected and loved and praised and have lots of money, lots of security. <laughs> And what I don't want, what if I what if, what if I, I get sick, I, I'm a failure, people reject me, they, they despise me, I, I get terrible diseases, I look ugly, I lose my hair, or <laughs> <laughs> I uh, get leprosy, and... Uh, I lose all my money, I'm poverty-stricken, this is what we most dread, isn't it? There's being at the bottom, and what we, you know, the worldly values are trying to get the best and to avoid the worst. But reflecting in this way means that we, good, bad, success, failure, praise or blame, they're of equal value in terms of meditation. In meditation and spiritual development it isn't it's not dependent upon you being successful, happy, healthy, wealthy, everybody liking you, and all the best. Because sometimes we learn the most from the, from the other side, don't we? We learn a lot from sickness and from disappointment, disillusionment, broken hearts, uh, unrequited love and all the rest. We learn a lot from these things. We gain a lot of strength if, we, if we're willing to, to uh, contemplate these experiences. At least I've learned a lot from those. I look back now over my life and I think, I'm even grateful for all the things I used to resent. 
in my life when I was younger. There were certain things, certain experiences in my youth that I really resented, thought was unfair and should never have happened, and uh, carried, and, and I could uh, carry this around, and even for much of my monastic life, I could, when I remembered these events or these things that had happened, I'd still feel this resentment. I could still feel resentment inside me. And then through contemplation, I've, now I feel grateful for the misfortunes of my life. Because you realize that when life gets tough, and things aren't going right, something in you has to rise up. You have to kind of take it. You have to learn to endure, survive through what you most don't want or don't like and or feel is unfair or unjust. And I realize those are the things that make that give that have given me a lot of strength to to endure, to learn from the ups and downs of human experience. Just imagine if life were just, all of us were just, you know, we're brought up in just to be happy and successful and praise. I can't imagine that. My <laughs> 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 life is just easy and pleasant and one party after another. Strawberry ice cream. <laughs> So this realm is, it's, a, it's an irritating, it's a realm of, of dukkha, of, of uh, the experiences that irritate and cause us to, to create suffering if we're not mindful. So that mindfulness is what the Buddha expounded as a way to realize non-suffering. He didn't say non-irritation. Is he, he still was irritated by life after his enlightenment, but he didn't create suffering. And so the, the way to this realization of non-suffering is through mindfulness, through watching and listening. So notice, like, like just bringing it with the gamatana or the foundation, bringing attention to, say, just the body and the breath, <coughs> This you, you train yourself to do this when you're when you're doing the dishes or working in the kitchen or walking from here back to your uh, room or whatever, walking in the rain or whatever whatever is going on. Just keep keep uh, kind of remembering where am I? What am I doing? Walking is like this, so that you're you're more and more, say, integrating the sense of bringing attention to the what's going on right now, rather than rushing from here, meditation hall, to your, to your room, or rushing out to do your walking meditation. So you say, walking meditation time, you'll get up and run out and find a path, <laughs> and then we're mindful. Or uh, they say, it's your turn to do the dishes after the meal. They say, oh gosh, I came here to meditate, I didn't come here to do the dishes. 
and say, I want to get the dishes done so I can go and meditate. See, but doing the dishes is is part of conscious experience. When when you're doing the dishes, is, that's that's meditation too. So you you can and doing things like that don't, don't see them as obstructions, but as opportunities for integrating mindfulness into a flow of life rather than into just formalized situations. Like like we we often the the danger is always seeing meditation as a very special thing you do under uh, certain conditions that allow for what you regard as meditation. Another uh, one I found very helpful to 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 say open the mind to it to a state of just bare attention is uh, what I call using the the background sound in the mind, the kind of silent ringing. If you're listening, if you're kind of listening to the rain, behind the rain, the sound of the rain on the roof, the kind of ringing sound. And I generally refer to that as the sound of silence, or it's uh, called the nada in Sanskrit, nada yoga, or shabda. Uh, and this is uh, this sound, this cosmic sound, is also something to to focus on to, because that that is that way of listening uh, gives you a kind of radar-like awareness. Your, your, your mind kind of opens wide, it's all embracing when you're using that as a kind of the, the background for your meditation. Like right now I can hear, I can hear that sound and still be talking. It's not like something that, that you have to kind of do and then in which, which uh, uh, you have to ignore everything else. It's, a, it's something to to give you a sense for this kind of openness, embracing, intuitive ability of your mind. Because it is like the space in the room, isn't it? It's like the, the it's the silence, rather the, the, it's a continuous, it's a fairly kind of maybe electric sound or whatever it is, it, it's always there. Except we don't notice. We notice this other sound, like the rain or the the uh, sound of the birds, something like that. But this is, is something we don't notice till usually people don't notice it till it's pointed out, or they think it's something wrong with their ears. I think they've got ear problems. But this this ability to to is then is is. It's helping your intuitive awareness. It it's, uh, it's, uh, gives this, this embracing quality to where physical pain or, or emotional stress or that can be related to that sound of silence. And it helps you to bear with it, to endure what emotionally your, your mind is saying, I can't stand this any longer. I found that very helpful. Like, 
my mind would, my emotion would say, I can't take any more of this. Then I listen to the sound of silence. I can take more of it. <laughs> but emotionally, of course, emotions, we can, we can still be little, like little babies. You know, not getting our way or anything. I can't take any more, this is enough. I can't stand it. I'm not going to be treated like this. <laughs> we can take, we can endure everything and anything. Human beings are tough creatures. We're survivors. We're not a bunch of wimps. But we don't have to be. <laughs> so it's just learning to, learning how not to give in to say emotional uh, proddings and habits that we might have. And that's where meditation, like sitting still for forty-five minutes, isn't it? It brings up uh, emotion. Just having to be still, or having to deal with maybe unpleasant thoughts, or wandering mind, or pain in 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 your legs or in your back, and, and so the, the emotionally we we uh, we don't want any. We don't. None of us want pain or restlessness or any of these unpleasant uh, conditions. But it's not a matter of of trying to get rid of them, but in Giving them, accepting them for what they are, because then they they change themselves. They're not permanent. They're not the ultimate reality. So we learn <coughs> how to be patient and endure what we think emotionally. What we think we can't endure, we can bear with with physical pain, with hunger, with heat and cold, with praise and blame um, and what we think we can't stand anymore we can stand and it's not to to do it in a kind of willful way because what I'm not recommending is just a willful practice but more of a a faith oriented practice where you you're not just saying I'm going to do this and break through the pain barrier or I'm going to conquer pain or I'm, I'm not going to give in to weakness and, and uh, use a lot of willpower uh, in the process. And, and you, sometimes you succeed, sometimes you don't with willpower. But more, much more to just observe the, and to witness. And to contemplate these various uh, reactions, both physical and emotional reactions that you're having in the present. So these are, they say, the body as a focus, like the, the kind of sweeping practices they do that some teachers have and are very good, where you, where you contemplate the sensations in the body. That I found very helpful uh, in, uh, in just getting in touch, getting aware of the, uh, of say, neutral sensations. I used to contemplate the one hand touching the other or 
the pressure of my clothes on my skin, kind of neutral sensations that they don't kind of, uh, that you, you, would you would tend to ignore, not notice, because they're neutral. And that we tend to only, say the unawakened human being, notices only the, the extremities of, of experience, of sensory experience. You notice if you're feeling really good or if you're feeling really bad. If your body's feeling really healthy and feeling good, or if the body's in pain, then you notice sensations like that. But, but say, just the, the neutral sensation is you pay attention, because it's not, you're not going to notice it unless you pay attention to, say, that the pressure of your clothes on your skin, or the, or the sensations around your face, your mouth, your, your nose, your eyes and ears, or your scalp. We also have a way of just ignoring uh, un unpleasant sensations. So, so when we feel uh, slightly uncomfortable or something, we can just ignore them until they get uh, painful to where we, we want to get rid of them. So this, 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 is the, this is the pattern or the paradigm of consciousness is that each one of us now is, in a, is, is a conscious individual entity. Each one of us is a separate entity in this universe, in this form here. And consciousness is a sensory realm and we're conscious. And how do we interpret this conscious experience? Say, how do we interpret or how are we to understand this conscious experience that, that we're having at this time? Well, what we generally do is interpret it from a culturally conditioned attitude, which is based on a sense of self, isn't it? I am the body. I am this person. I am uh, a man. I am a Buddhist monk. I am... Uh, I feel like this, and this is, in, and the, you want to hear the history of my life. When did you first become a Buddhist, Ajahn Sumedho? I get asked that so many times. <laughs> oh, he's back in a <laughs> <laughs> Then I have a, a, I have a biography. I have a birth certificate. So the I am, me and mine, is the, what cultural conditioning generally encourages. This identification with Americans or whatever nationality you happen to be, that's, that's something conditioned into your mind. Even this, even this place, we say, we're living in America, in the USA. That's conditioned, isn't it? This, this place doesn't, doesn't say it's the USA. We say it is. I used to contemplate that in England. I used to walk out in the field at Amravati and I and say, does this ground come up and say, I'm England? <laughs> no, I'm saying you, this is England. 
me, point Coming out of my mind, it's conditioned, isn't it? If, if you just drop somewhere and you don't know where you are, what, what would you call it? So this is a, a, a reflection on just how we are projecting things onto life. And fair enough, we, it's on the cultural level, con cultural conventions are, are all right, not to disparage them, but recognize that they're not ultimately true. It's not reality, it's merely conventional reality. And so I am, and me and mine is a conventional reality only, but it's not ultimate reality. So when you fill out your form to attend this retreat, you put your name down and, and, and your address and things like this. This is conventional reality. But that's not what you are. You're not your name, your address, your nationality. These are, these are conventions that you acquire after you're born. You acquire a sense of, I am the body, I am a male or I am a female. This, when you're born, you don't, you don't think, well, you don't think, I, well, here I am born as a male, or here I am born as a female. You don't really care until a certain age, and then suddenly you start noticing the difference. <laughs> But it's not, not something that, that you're, you're born with as a, as a, uh, at the time of birth, but you are born uh, in, as with consciousness and a separate form. So, like birth implies like a separate form that's conscious. And so now we are using Dhamma language to interpret conscious experience. And so this is very important to change, we're, we're developing a language that we all agree to, that is pointing to, which is used for mindfulness and for understanding rather than for personal identity. So that's why you're changing out of, say, I am my body, I am this personality, this person, into, there is, there's this body, it's like this, there's conscious, there's these personal feelings. There's these perceptions of myself. To, to become a person, you have to think, don't you? you? When you're not thinking, you're not a person. Contemplate that. To become somebody, you have to start thinking. So now listen to the sound of silence. And one can reflect in that space and then deliberately think, I am Ajahn Sameda, whatever your name is. You don't think, you don't have to use my name. <laughs> <laughs> and I become Ajahn Sameda just by thinking it. But now there's no Ajahn Sameda. Right now. But you think there is because you see me sitting here. You know, that's Ajahn Sumedho. <laughs> but you're projecting. It's coming out of your mind. You're saying, that's Ajahn Sumedho. Right now. No Ajahn Sumedho. 
this is my disappearing act. <laughs> I told Bart the other day, I said, you know, I've learned this marvelous, I've this ability to disappear at will. <laughs> he looks at me. <laughs> so, Sound of Silence helps you to get that perspective to, to, and to notice, like, uh, I am, we can bring up uh, things that we identify with most and, uh, and things that hurt our feelings or that we're sensitive about. And, uh, and then we can, we can notice, we're observing, we're not, we're not trying to, to prove anything in terms of a personal, uh, as far as personality goes, but just witness how we become somebody. Because I can, uh, just by thinking certain thoughts, I can become uh, angry or uh, greedy or resentful or jealous or frightened or worried or anxious just by thinking. What's going to happen in the next century? And now, you know, what's happening in Amravati in England when I'm away? What are they doing? <laughs> or I can think of things of the past, you know, how d the disappointing situations or resentful situations, I can, I, can, I can work myself up into a state of, it's not fair, uh, my father shouldn't have done that, um, the, uh, I had a, in seventh grade, uh, I had a terrible teacher that, that shattered my confidence. <laughs> Miss B, I'll never forget her. <laughs> I can't forget that woman. <laughs> no, I can, I can get really kind of worked up on that if I allow <laughs> But also, it's related to the silence of the mind, and so it's not—it's a—it's a way of exploring or, or putting into perspective, say, your emotional reactions. It's not to deny or judge, but to to get perspective. Because if you don't have any perspective on your emotions, then you just get caught up into them, and then you have to suppress them. So you get worked up, you get uh, into some emotional state, and then you then you think, oh. Uh, then you say, Anapanasati, <laughs> trying to, 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 to get rid of your emotions, or, uh, or you just distract yourself, you try to power positive thinking. <laughs> I love uh, all beings, may all beings be happy, <laughs> kind of thing. And so we're, we're trying to just maybe impose another kind of uh, mental state, created mental state on top of, you know, to suppress another. But in this emptiness of the mind, 
and this silence or spaciousness of the mind, then, you, then you're getting perspective on the conditions both of your body and your, and your mental conditioning. It is very important that you, you appreciate what, that you can do this, that you can actually turn away, you, you can actually get, like, in, like just say with eye consciousness, here and now in this room, when you're looking at the space in the room, it's different than when you're caught up into looking at the people or the decorations or the furniture or whatever, isn't it? I mean, we, we can come in here and we, we look at the shrine, we look at the people, but the space which is here, we don't, we tend to not notice, till we remind ourselves of the space. And the space then isn't, it, it gives us perspective on the things in the room. So you, you have, you can relate the, the people, the furniture, the walls, the whole thing, to space, you have perspective. You're not just caught in going from one thing to another. The same with, uh, say, the silence of the mind, Let's say, with thinking, or with emotional uh, uh, habits, is that, that you need to recognize the, the emptiness of the mind, or the silence of the mind, the background, the, that, that puts into perspective your thoughts and your emotions. So then you begin to know that what an emotion is and what a thought is. And you also know when it's, when there, when it's, how, that it's a, a condition that ceases. And so you're not just going, going, getting, rearranging your thoughts and emotions all the time, just, just uh, busy uh, going from one thing to another. You can actually uh, turn away from that toward the silence or the spaciousness or the emptiness of the mind. And this turning away is not rejection, but it's a recognition of, of putting into perspective your, your thoughts, your feelings. And it's a very skillful thing to be able to do. I've noticed like, like with, uh, say if I, with an emotional experience, say if I feel angry at something, something happens and I feel anger arising. Sometimes they, they used to say, count to ten before you say anything, don't they? they? When you get angry, count to ten before you say there's, there's wisdom in that statement. But count to ten with the sound of silence. And then you find that the power, say, that you're not just caught into this angry emotion. You, you're getting perspective on it, and you, and you're also you, you're being able to see it as some, as an object rather than as a problem that you're having, because you're learning to use dharma, dharma speak. Is that a good combination? <laughs> no, dharma language. <laughs> Dharma language, which is 
is to is a is a way of of using thought and perception in a skillful way because we acquire our language don't we when when we're uh, you know we can when we with through the idea of it of me and mine that's what all of us have been conditioned through through the cultural conditioning to think in terms of I am and then we live in a very competitive system so we're always comparing ourselves with somebody else he or she is better than me or I'm better than he or she or I'm taller or I'm shorter or I'm better looking or I'm not as good looking or I'm more clever or not as clever <laughs> and so we these are perceptions we create in the mind about ourselves but in terms of Dharma language then all these perceptions are seen as Dharmas but what arises ceases they're seeing the impermanence of conditioning so Dharma language is a language which which points to the way it is whatever you're thinking whether you think I'm better than you are I'm I'm inferior to you whatever it is whatever emotion you have to be experiencing it's impermanent what arises ceases and so that this this is a this is a this is just the way it is the impermanence of the conditioned realm you're reflecting upon and you're learning to to free yourself from that insidious identity with the body with the mental conditioning you you have you your habits your emotions your your opinions and views so in uh, buddha dhamma they the uh, the relationship of the conditioned to the unconditioned the in the position we're in as a human entity as a separate entity we can contemplate that relationship of the condition to the unconditioned we can contemplate the relationship of self the sense of a self or a personality to non-self so it's just that that ability to listen and pay attention mindfulness mindfulness sati uh, clear comprehension sampanchanya panya or wisdom we're using wisdom with mindfulness consciousness conscious experience as a separate entity where we can understand Dhamma, we can see things as they really are. So this is where, like investigating, that's why, really contemplate, when do you, when do you come into being and when are you not? You can disappear just like I can as well. But it's a way of, of contemplating, isn't it? It's not, 
It's not, it's not a, a, a magic thing, you know, some great attainment. I'm suddenly going to disappear into thin air, the body. The body's still here. But there's not a sense of me as the body or me as anything. There's, there's still awareness. There's, there's conscious awareness. And just by investigating that, say self, the sense of yourself as being a person, a personality, and non-self, when there is no sense, when there's no self, and so in, in this, in, with awareness, remember, you're still conscious, so there's still a subjective experience going on, but you're interpreting it in terms of, of Dhamma language rather than of of uh, conventional language and conditioning uh, and, the gen and the acquired conditioning of your mind. With uh, suffering, for example, when is there, when is there just the way things are, which is irritating, and when is when do and what is it that we create onto it? For example, right now we're there's uh, raining out, so you can hear the rain. That's just the way it is, isn't it? I can hear the rain. And then I can create suffering. I can say, oh, it's raining again. Rainy Washington. I want some sunshine. I don't like the rain. I'm creating suffering onto the, onto, to what I'm hearing. You know, I'm hearing the rain. I'm hearing the sound, this sound. And then emotionally I think, I don't want, I don't want it to be there. So I'm, I'm, I'm creating suffering. Or if I don't create any suffering, then there's just the sound of the rain. It's like this. <clears throat> or say pain in your body. You feel pain in your body. Some kind of discomfort. It feels like this. And then you know, I don't want this pain. I don't want this discomfort. I hate it. I hate pain. I want to get rid of it. Then you're creating that suffering onto the sensation. And so forth. In, the, in, um, in the monastic life, for example, in the, when I lived in Thailand, went through a lot of this, where, where I would uh, create suffering around the, the way things are in Thailand. And Ajahn Chah is very good at getting us to see what we're doing. So he'd say, he's like, Sumato, what my poem is a lot of suffering, isn't it? 
think, yes, it's suffering. The food is terrible, too hot. Don't like this, don't like that. I would never say that to him, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> but it did get me to contemplate. When he said, Sumedho, what about poem is a lot of suffering? I started thinking, well, is it really suffering here? Or am I creating suffering? So asking myself, what, what, you know, what is the, the heat? I can take that. The food, it's all right. I can, it's enough to nourish the body. Uh, the monks, they were always kind to me. Wise teacher. Pleasant country. What's the suffering? Because I don't like the heat. I don't like... Uh, I'm tired of eating sticky rice. Or, or I'm just moaning about something. Complaining. I was a complaining type. When I entered the monastic life, I was good at complaining about everything. And so this, this complaining was something I create onto life. Again, to see that in the, uh, as I contemplated, that, that the, the irritations of, say, living in, uh, say, going to England, living in a cold country, is that suffering? No, I can take that, that's all right. But the suffering is, is what I create onto, say, I, I don't want England to be cold. I want it to be warm. <laughs> so contemplate this. Just how you know, the, like say, not having dinner in the evening during this, these ten days. Some people won't come to my retreats because I don't let them eat in the evening. <laughs> But is that, is not eating in the evening suffering? Or can you take that? Just, you know, not, not, not having something to eat. Is that something you can, is that bearable? Or is it, is your life in, in danger? So you're going to die <laughs> because you, you didn't, didn't get your dinner. Or are you creating suffering around that perception? This is for you to contemplate just what, what suffering really is in terms of the first noble truth. The complaining, the, the grumbling, the, the uh, wanting life to be something it can't be, uh, wanting everything to be fair and life to be good and wanting to be happy and then feeling somehow disappointed or resentful because it's like this. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have any questions on this theme tonight? I'm trying to feel what it's like when you said the Buddha was irritated but didn't suffer. 
Well, after his enlightenment, he uh, he lived about 40 more years. And then, during that time, he, uh, he, had, he still had a physical, I mean, he was a normal human being, so he, he experienced uh, illnesses, backaches, headaches. Um, he still had to deal with, uh, uh, you know, a jealous cousin, Tevatata, he tried to kill him with uh, stubborn and uh, obnoxious monks. <laughs> and you're reading the Vinaya, the discipline. And they call the group of six. This <laughs> kind of a group of six monks that used to, that so many of the rules in the Vinaya were made um, over because they were always doing uh, naughty things or in, uh, being insensitive. So, and then the Buddha say, foolish monk, or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the bhikkhus of Kosambi uh, is another story. These, these monks were arguing about some minor point in the Vinaya. Really minor point. <laughs> and, uh, and, they were arguing and they, they just were, were formed into two factions and they were just going at each other day and night. The Buddha said, I had, I, he said, I can't take any more of this. <laughs> <laughs> and he went off and spent the rainy season with a monkey and an elephant. So, I mean, he, he, I mean, it, it does, you know, this, this, but he wasn't suffering. He wasn't creating suffering. He was able to respond to situations or, uh, you know, it wasn't, he was aware of the situation, aware of uh, what's going on, but he wasn't, and he was feeling it, you feel it, but you don't create a reaction, an, uh, an un suitable reaction to it. Like one last year, a couple of years ago, there was a man at Amravati who was a kind of middle-aged man who had a lot of anger. And he'd get angry. He'd stand up in the morning meeting and, and say, uh, you people don't respect me. And, and uh, he'd kind of yell at us. And, uh, and uh, then uh, we're always trying to, we were trying to respect him. <laughs> but anyway, one day he is really, we did something, the last straw, and he said, I just wait, I want to see you. Uh, I want to have a talk with you. And two other bickers he named. So I said, um, well, uh, two o'clock this afternoon. So then, Two o'clock in the afternoon, we met in the reception room, and he came in all kind of primed for the attack. And he was really angry, and he was, and he started uh, telling me off. And I determined, and I determined that in this situation, I'd just accept everything he said, 
I, I would, I wouldn't try to defend or blame him or anything. I just would listen and feel what he's saying. So, so your body, when some, somebody's being aggressive towards you, because when somebody's angry and then they're using these aggressive gestures like this, you're going like that. <laughs> 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 and you feel it in your guts. You can feel, uh, the, you know, this, this kind of instinctual uh, reaction. But there's a, uh, I was, I was determined to accept the feeling. So I was feeling his anger. <clears throat> and I could feel the kind of impulses in my own mind to, to get angry. But I wasn't, I wouldn't follow those impulses. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, I could see, I mean, how I could, you know, react to his anger and get angry back. But I wouldn't follow it. I wouldn't allow that to happen, but I was willing to feel his anger and acknowledge the, the kind of, and, and, and contemplated how it could trigger off my anger. But uh, after a while, he, he uh, after he said everything, and I didn't get angry, I just accepted, and I apologized when I felt, you know, he had a point that we were maybe insensitive, but I wasn't just trying to be, you know, give in to his anger, but just trying to receive it and work with it. And then his anger disappeared. And it was like a real, uh, you know, it was very, I thought it was a very uh, important experience for me because it brought, it was very clear how to accept the suffering of others and how to accept uh, uh, blame from others without, you know, creating suffering in your own mind. So a lot of his uh, accusations and feelings were, I thought were unfair. You know, they weren't. They were unjustified. He was being silly. But I was accepting that rather than resent, creating resentment. Over, the, over things that he said that were unfair. And so, where before I would feel, I used to get outraged when things, I thought things were being, somebody was being unfair. I've been in England a lot, many years now, and English people, they like everything to be fair. In fact, the, the English say, it's not fair. <laughs> That's the cry there in that country, it's not fair. And uh, we, we like things in England to be fair. But I like fairness. But sometimes life isn't fair. Uh, and you can't demand that everything be fair. Life is, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. <coughs> but when it isn't, it feels, it, you know, we can, we can endure unfairness. That's an endurable experience. But what we can't endure is our I don't want, it's not fair and I don't like you anymore because you're not being fair and, and all I've done for you, put up with your moods and everything and work my fingers to the bone and, and all I get is a criticism. <laughs> and then I get into a huff. I'm creating suffering. Then. Yes. Um, 
talk about not trying too hard to attain something, but also how we gain something from our difficult times. And so maybe not so much here, but back home, I, I don't always know when it's okay to just sort of do and be and when to strive. And one person that I work next to, she's constantly striving and pushing and pushing. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be like that anymore, but I don't want to just be passive. How do you distinguish between trying too hard and, and needing to rise up? Well, that's where you've got to trust your intuition, intuition, because there's no, there's no formula I can give you, but one thing we all need in, in the holy life, in the spiritual development, and one of the most difficult things is to trust yourself, because at least I found that, I mean, I tend to, to be someone who wouldn't, you know, doesn't, would, feels, uh, used to feel very, uh, that I wanted, I didn't dare trust myself. I had to have somebody else tell me what I should do or where I'm at. And I think one of the difficult passages in my life as a monk has been to, to really trust myself on the intuitive level, not my emotions I don't trust. But as you're as you open to that experience more and really uh, observe and, and use it, use that as a to uh, contemplate with, then you'll see yourself what you'll know what to do or what not to do and trust in that you know. and even sometimes you might even ma you make a mistake you, you learn from that too But it's, uh, it's like, like it's something you can, you can use, something that, let's say, uh, influences you a lot or has a strong effect on your life. Uh, say, as you, as you open to it more, rather than just kind of resist or react to it, and uh, and and just watch what happens to you, how it affects you, <coughs> and uh, you, the uh, you'll find that you'll have a uh, you'll be more confident in knowing what you should or should not do in terms of say saying something or not saying something or whatever. Sometimes Buddhism gives the impression of just being a kind of passive. Everything's impermanent, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not dismissing life. We're not just kind of dismissing everything and saying, every, because everything is, is impermanent, it doesn't matter. Now that's, that's dismissal, isn't it? You know, just, I shouldn't, I'll just 
bear with it and see the impermanence of this miserable situation can be just another kind of, uh, you know, dismissing the situation or not, not trusting in your, in your ability to uh, respond to it. And of course we do get criticism because uh, Buddhism, how it looks to people who are non-Buddhist sometimes is like you, it's, it's otherworldly. In fact, the Pope's criticism was that it, it, uh, it was, uh, was otherworldly. It didn't, didn't uh, prepare you for dealing with worldly situations. But that's not true. It's, uh, if you do look at Buddhism in just the most kind of simplistic way, it might appear like that. But, but with mindfulness, you're, you're opening yourself up to a total sensitivity. You're not, you're not trying to get out of anything and run away from anything. You're not trying to, you know, just close your eyes and pretend that nothing, there's no problems and, and dismiss the world because it isn't, uh, because you can't stand it. It means you're, more and more as you practice, practice meditation the right way, you're willing to experience the suffering of the world. You're willing to do. You're willing to understand suffering. You're not trying to get out of it or run away from it. You're willing to suffer because you know that suffering is is very much the, this realm that we live in is 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 like this. But you're seeing also that you don't you don't create suffering in your anymore. You don't have to create suffering around the suffering that you're feeling which is like there's the impingement and the and the emotional reactions you're having you're you're accepting you're aware of them you're fully accepting them you're willing to feel them but you're not creating <coughs> uh, reacting to those feelings with greed hatred or delusion So it is a marvelous gift we have, isn't it, as human beings, that we can do this. We can do it. It's not beyond anyone's ability. <laughs> yes? I'm going to apologize for being late. I've been assessing it since I came in. And, and this is the typical example of I overslept. I am exhausted. My work day while was hectic. It's always like that at the beginning of the retreat. I'm sure that many people experience that. You know, this exhaustion. And so I was wrong. I, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed at having been late. And I want to drop it. You know, there's this inner dialogue of, I don't want you to be insulted. I don't want to, you know. So I, I think the best thing to do is to apologize. <laughs> 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 yes, uh, I wasn't insulted. <laughs> 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 so now, let's see. We should this evening 
the white one, the white sharing of blessing. This this little one. The the smaller page. Now this, uh, this is a chant we do every evening in the monastery, usually every evening, so that the idea is that any blessings from your practice you share with all beings. Now this is a beautiful kind of prayer, uh, so that you're not just thinking, it, it helps to, 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 uh, for you to, uh, contemplate that, that, that we're in this together, you know, what we do, how we live our lives is, is we're affecting all sentient beings. And so the blessings from our life, like practicing meditation, uh, living, uh, practicing the Dhamma, uh, helping uh, uh, the staff, the, the people that have uh, running this retreat, the, the cooks and the all the, the people that have offered their services, uh, they, they're, these are blessings. They, they, they're, they're, getting, they're sharing the blessings of this of their practice with all sentient beings. So it says, through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue and so on, my mother, my father, relatives, uh, even the sun and the moon. So this implies a, a kind of, in Buddhist uh, uh, sense of sharing of blessings, it's with everything, everyone. The Lord of Death, and those who are friendly and different or hostile, and and so forth. And, and, and so, uh, may the highest gods and evil forces. So notice in the this this is a total. This is a this is an this is the experience of totality. When you're blessing, when you're when you're sharing blessings, you're you're sharing it with with the totality of existence. The good and the bad, the the good forces, the evil forces, the the sun and the moon, the gods and the devils, the whole lot. So this, notice that this, uh, pointing this out, this, that the totality is, that's all-inclusive of every possibility of, of any kind of sentient being. And then some people say, I don't want to share my blessings with evil forces. <laughs> I want to share my blessings only with the good. That, that, that's, that's because you still see See, uh, see it in terms of, of uh, that we're blessing evil forces. We're not. We're not blessing evil forces. But we're sharing the blessings of our life so that evil forces might be able to uh, give up their evilness. I used to use this a lot when Mrs. Thatcher was Prime Minister. <laughs> 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 so 
sharing the blessings of our life with Mrs. Thatcher and some, some people found that very difficult. <laughs> Evil forces, no problem. the verses of sharing and aspiration. Thank you.